If you have your Bible with you, please turn to our sermon text today, which is Revelation 7. That's the last book of the Bible, Revelation 7. You can find this at page 969 of the Black Pew Bible. Uh, As I said before, we're ending a series today talking about the great themes of salvation in Scripture. Uh, Today we're looking at glorification. What does it mean to be glorified with Christ in heaven? And so this passage, uh, I don't need to give you too much by way of introduction other than to say it is very glorious. What we're about to read is strikingly beautiful and I'm very excited to be able to share it with you today. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. In the third book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or the third movie if you're a movie person, Gandalf, the wise wizard, is sitting alongside his little friend Pippin. Pippin is a hobbit. It's the day before a great battle in the city of Gondor. If I've lost you already, don't worry. Uh, you'll still get this illustration if you're totally lost about Lord of the Rings. They're sitting on the eve of a great battle, and they know that all the forces of evil in Middle-earth, every single one of them, are lining up at the gates of Gondor. Pippin turns to his bigger and wiser friend. He says, Gandalf, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf said, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? 
white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't so bad. No, Pippin. No, it isn't. Have you ever seen that scene? It's beautiful. What is Gandalf doing for his little friend? He's doing something that I think all of us do from time to time. Whether you consider yourself a believer in Jesus or a believer in heaven or not, you do this all the time. You take a future vision that you cherish and you share it with someone you love in order to encourage them in the present. There's something you're excited about in the future that you take and you paint the picture for them so that they can see it and take heart. Everybody does it. Well, here at the end of the Bible, and this is a non-fiction vision, we believe. In case you didn't pick up on it, Lord of the Rings is fiction. This is non-fiction. Jesus Christ himself is showing his servant John, very much smaller than him, he's showing him a series of visions in the book of Revelation, visions of the future, so that John could learn and that John could share with all the churches he was responsible for, so that all the Christians could endure the persecution and the temptation and the difficulty that they're called to face on the way to death and to heaven. This vision is one of those, and I believe it's the greatest of all of them in Revelation. And it's convenient that I think that because it is one of the ones that is easy to understand. In the book of Revelation, many of them are not so easy to understand. There are many interpretations. This vision, almost everybody agrees, this is a picture of heaven, of glory, where God is taking us in his generosity to bestow his blessings on us everlastingly. Don't you want to hear about it this morning? If you'll look at your bulletin, there are three questions that we want to ask and answer. Uh, First of all, who does John see in glory in the vision? Who does he see? Secondly, where are they exactly? And lastly, how did they get there? Who are they, where are they, and how did they get there? Let's look first of all at who they are. In verse 9, at the very beginning, you'll see it. Uh, John is beside himself. After this, I looked, and behold, he sees this great vision of what? A great multitude. Do you see that? A very, very large crowd of people, a multitude. In fact, it was so large that John remarks, nobody could number it. Now, by nobody, he doesn't mean God, right? God knows the number of this group. The Bible says God has known his people from before the world was made. He's got us all numbered. He knows your name. He knows each one. There's no limit to God's numbering ability. John means he couldn't number them. And he he could not imagine that there would be any other human being who could number them. He's looking out over this vast expanse. And there's a crowd that he knows he can't go one, two, three, four, five, six, and get to the end. It's millions. It's maybe billions of people gathered around the throne room of God. Wow. He gives another detail. This multitude is diverse. 
It takes in people from all the tribes. Do you see this in verse 9? All the tribes, all the peoples, all the languages that have been spoken on earth, every nation, everybody, every group has a representative or two or three or a thousand in this bunch in heaven. It is a universal, international, diverse, innumerable amount of people in heaven in the end. What John is seeing here is not heaven as it is now. Because when John sees heaven as it is now, he sees only souls and they are mostly crying out for God to end the suffering of his people on earth. What God or what God is showing John here is heaven as it will be then. At the very end of time, the great day of the Lord that Zechariah foresaw. After the resurrection of the dead, after the return of Christ, when every one of the people of God are finally gathered into God's banqueting house. Isn't that beautiful? In fact, if you are a student of the Bible, you may have noticed that the language he uses is very familiar to you because it's language that's been used from the very beginning of the Bible. When God made Adam and Eve, he says, I want you to go and multiply and fill the earth. I want you to be a multitude. And we know that Adam and Eve failed to do that, but right away God begins to give his covenant promise to Noah and then to Abraham, and it's the same thing. I will make of you, Abraham, a multitude. From your body will come more people than can be counted. Remember what he did? He took Abraham outside at night and he said, Abraham, look at the stars. If you can count the stars, number them. That's how many people I've got planned to belong to me. Now, kids, can you imagine numbering the stars at night? One, two, three, four, five, six. Could you, could you do it? Oh, we've got telescopes that fill whole buildings, don't we? And they take beautiful pictures in deep space. And yet we still haven't laid eyes on every star there is. We haven't reached their end yet. And God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, think about that kind of multitude. That's the multitude of people that I will to have at my banquet table for eternity. Then he turned around and said, Abraham, think about the sand on the seashore. Can you count the grains of sand? Think about that. One, two, three, four, five. How many grains of sand do you reckon would fill one bucket? I mean, thousands, millions. Once you fill that bucket and count them all, how much more sand is left on the beach? Wow, isn't that blow your mind? That kind of multitude. This is blowing John's mind to see that God wills heaven to be populated. And the population of heaven won't be zero, and it won't even be a few. It will be a great many. What an encouraging thought that is, don't you think? Now, some people have taken this passage and said, well, this kind of shows that there will be more people in heaven than there are in hell. I find that to be an interesting thought. I'm not sure I can prove it from the Bible. But I will say that it does seem to suggest that the number in heaven might possibly exceed the number in hell. That's surprising, especially if you're alive as a Christian at any given moment in time like we are, because sometimes it seems like as Christians we are outnumbered. It seems like we are completely ineffective. It feels like we are alone sometimes. 
Because the number in any given generation sometimes is few. Jesus says the way is narrow and few there be who find it. But when you begin to stretch out and think about all the generations from Adam onward, and you begin to think about all those who've been saved, who've believed, and you think about all those who've died, say, in infancy, and you begin to total up the number of people that God may be planning to bring into the kingdom of heaven, then you see what those theologians are talking about. Heaven will be populated. And we won't be able to number the population. That's why in the book of Revelation, heaven is described as a city. A great city, not as a small town. Heaven will be a great city peopled with those whom God is drawing by generosity into his banquet. Now think about it. Every one of us, we, we look up to those people that are good hosts, don't we? And hostesses. It is a certain gift, isn't it, to be a good host? Uh, some of us don't have it. Uh, some of us don't want it. Amen? But there are those who have it, and you know they have it. They, they love to make people happy at their table. They love to have many people at their house trampling everywhere. Some of us, that drives us crazy. Some of us love it. Which one is God? And how do you think of God? Don't you know that when Jesus told stories about God's character, this is one of the main themes he picked up on? Over and over again, he says a story like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a great man who threw a banquet. And he made it all ready and he piled up the feast on the table and he decorated the house and then he went out and sent invitations and when those invitations were refused he sent out more messengers to bring in more people even the blind and the lame and the deaf and then when they all came in he sent out more to compel people to come in that's in Luke chapter 14 compel them to come in go to the highways and go to the byways and bring them in. And this is what God says in the parable. Because my banquet hall must be filled. When you think of God, is that what you think of? A God so generous that his end time party can't be with a few people. It must be with many. He has way too much to share he has infinite stores. He is himself a fountain of love and a fountain of life. And so he has plenty to go around, and he wants many to taste that from that fountain. What John is seeing here is the church at the end, the outcome of all of God's works of salvation down through the corridors of history. It will culminate in a banquet hall filled with guests and filled themselves with joy. That's God. Now what John is seeing here is not a might kind of vision. This is not, John, here's what might happen if you cooperate and behave. Here's what might happen if you are awesome. No, actually, this is a vision of what will happen. 
You say, you've got to prove that, Stan. Well, well look, at, look at the first verse of the whole book of Revelation. Where it says that Jesus Christ gave these visions, visions to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Must take place. Same thing in chapter 4 of Revelation. Jesus says to John, come up here, verse uh, 1, and I will show you what must take place after this. John is not dealing in maybes or ifs or mights. John is seeing wills and shalls and musts, the things that God is determined to carry out, which he will carry out. Can you imagine that God would send his son into the world to die, and yet at the end of all of it, heaven would be empty? unthinkable in fact I would say that thought is positively blasphemous God sent his son on an errand that he ensured would be successful because God must fill his banquet hall with guests now this morning this may blow your mind but I want you to think about this if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, John may just have seen your face in the crowd. I'll tell you this, you were in the crowd that John saw. John saw not an if crowd, a maybe crowd, he saw the crowd that will be there at the end. Isn't that crazy? He saw all the people of God. He saw you. He saw me. We were there. We were among that number that no one could number. What an amazing thing. And so if there's anybody here today who came in and thought, I don't know if God can be trusted. I don't know if he's for us or against us. I, I don't know. The world's so bad. I wonder sometimes whether God cares about anybody. If you're thinking that, I want you, I want to be your Gandalf this morning, if I could. And I want you to look at this amazing vision. A green country under a swift sunrise. A crowd that no one could number from every tribe, nation, and language. God's covenant realized and fulfilled forever. You there, me there, all believers in Christ. There before the throne of God forever. This God can be trusted because he's able, and this God can be trusted because he's so generous he wants this to happen. He wants his throne room to be filled with a diverse bunch of guests. Wow. That's who John saw. Let's look in the second place at where they are specifically. Now, you might say, well, that's obvious. They're in heaven. Well, yeah, that's true, but let's get some more detail about heaven. Do you ever imagine what heaven will be like? Do you ever think of it? If you don't think of it, I want to encourage you to start thinking about it, and this is a great place to start. John is given a picture with symbols, and each of these symbols represents something very vital about heaven. And it begins there in the, at the end of verse uh, 9, where it says that this great crowd was standing where? Where were they standing? Before the throne. Whose throne? The throne. 
God's throne. And before the Lamb, who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Where's heaven? What makes heaven heaven? God's there. What makes heaven heaven? Christ is there. And there we are, like in a circle around God, looking on God face to face. No one has ever seen God up to this point. We will see him face to face. And the glory, the Bible says, that shines from God will almost jump over onto us and we'll become even as he is because we'll see him as he is. Light coming from him like a fountain of light into us, bursting out from us into new light. Us becoming glorified. What one writer says about it is this. Glorification means that one day everyone who is united to the risen Christ will become as glorious as Christ himself is glorious. What does that mean? That means we'll have a new soul in a new body. A new body. Amen? In a new universe. Each in perfect harmony with the others so that mankind is able at last to live out his or her full potential to the glory of God. That's what this is. That's what heaven is. When you think of heaven, don't think, ooh, there's golden streets. I'd like to get me some of that gold. Or, ooh, mansions. I want to live in a mansion. No, those are symbols representing to us what is the true spiritual treasure of heaven, which is you get to see God. And become like Jesus forever. Lost in wonder, love, and praise, as the hymn says. And so it describes the people, how they're transformed by the environment they're in. They're in white robes, it says. Which means they're clean and cleansed. No more sin, no more guilt. No more temptation. They have palm branches in their hands. Y'all know what palm branches represent? Think of Palm Sunday, Hosanna. The palms represent victory. It's the victory of Christ that we're celebrating. That means we will have victory with Christ over everything that is evil. No more death. No more sickness. No more pain. No more tears. No more hell. No more condemnation. No more inner corruption within our own hearts. Palm branches in its place. And then it says we'll have a loud voice with which to cry praise to God. And what that means is that we'll be able to worship unhindered. How hindered are you at worshiping here below? It's hard, isn't it? To get focused, to stay focused, to get awake and stay awake, to get the time when you start to pray and you all of a sudden realize you're thinking about something completely unrelated. 15 minutes later, does that happen to anybody else? All of that taken away and, and us finely tuned to shout his praise. Transformed by the environment around us. What a glorious environment. He goes on in verse 11 to say that all the angels are there standing around. I don't even know how to imagine that. Angels in almost army formations around the people of God. The elders are there, and in Revelation, the elders stand for the great ones, the, the great leaders of the church from the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 24 of them. 
for the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples of Jesus, the complete collection of the hall of faith there with the saints. And then there's the four living creatures. And I have to profess, I have no idea what they stand for. When you read commentaries, almost everyone gives you a different thing. It's kind of frustrating, but the four living creatures, whether they are cherubim, whether they represent the new creation, whether they represent the born-again heart of the believer, whatever they represent, they're awesome and they're there. Everything harmonizing for God. That's heaven. In verses 15 to 17, at the very end, he, he almost breaks out into song describing it. We will be able to glorify God fully. It says we will serve him before the throne day and night in his temple. Day and night. We will not cease to serve God. We'll be active in heaven. Heaven is not a place of inactivity. It's not what Huckleberry Finn imagined. Floating around on a harp. Floating around on a cloud playing a harp. He didn't like that much. Although, if I'm honest, that sounds kind of awesome. Active service of God day and night. And we can imagine in all kinds of activities. And then God giving us the ability to enjoy him fully. As he shelters us with his presence, verse 15. As he takes away our hunger and our thirst and he stops the scorching heat. He stops the scorching heat. Amen. Amen. The lamb in the midst of the throne, our shepherd. We will know Jesus personally, physically, face to face. He'll guide us to springs of water. God will wipe away the tears from our eyes. We will glorify him and enjoy him fully forever. That's heaven. And that is what you were made for. If you don't think about that often, you should. Because you can't think about that and not be changed by it. Here's one way that I think it'll change you. Uh, anybody in, ever, in here ever have this feeling that you get something that you've worked hard for and really wanted so bad, and then when you get it, you think, hmm, that's it? That's what I worked hard for? Am I the only one that's had that feeling? Uh, honestly, there's probably nothing more human than that feeling. That is so common to every human being. I'll never forget the interview with Tom Brady that was on, I think it was like 60 Minutes, where they interviewed him after three Super Bowls. And they said, how do you feel? And he said, well, honestly, I'm 28, I have three Super Bowl rings, and I don't know why it is. All I keep thinking is, is that all there is? Is that it? Wow, Tom was honest. He was diagnosing something that is true of every one of us very well. Now, I'm not sure how he responded to that. And I'm not sure how you respond to that. But if you have faith in heaven to come, you'll learn to respond to it in a different way. Let me let C.S. Lewis help us. He says, when you have this feeling, there are three ways to respond. There are two typical ways, and then there's one Christian way. He says the first typical way that people respond is what he calls the fool's way. 
And, th- and that's, that's where you say, all right, I've got three Super Bowls. I still am not happy. I'm still empty. And so I'm going to go for the fourth. And then I'll get the fifth. And then I'll retire. And then I'll come back again and get another one. Right? It's when you say, you know, that trip wasn't great. Next year's vacation, that'll be the thing. This house, I hate it. That house, oh yeah, that'll make me happy. That's foolish. Why is it foolish? Because no matter how many finite things you put into an infinite hole, you can't feel the infinite hole, right? You can put a bunch of stuff in there. And it will still be a gaping, gnawing pit of hunger. In fact, you can wreck your life very easily by going the fool's way. You can burn through a ton of money. You can contract a lot of diseases. On and on and on. By trying to go from one thing to another to another to another. This will make me happy. This will make me happy. This will make me happy. C.S. Lewis said there's another typical way. It's kind of the opposite way. It's the person who becomes disillusioned by life. So I got the three Super Bowls. I'm not happy. And I say, you know what? Nothing means anything. There's just no happiness in life. It's just a bunch of things after another and then you die. It's the person who takes a drag on the cigarette and says, c'est la vie. Disillusioned. C.S. Lewis said, well, that, that actually might lead to a little bit healthier life because you won't be wrecking it by going from one thing to another incessantly. But you'll be an old, crotchety person that no one wants to hang out with. And in the end, you'll be sorely disappointed if you find out that eternity really is real and you've lived as if it's not. And so C.S. Lewis says there's a third way. There's a Christian way. And and that's what this passage is helping us see. The Christian way is this. Quoting from Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's the Christian way. The Christian knows how to accept the good things of this life as gifts. They're all gifts coming down from the Father. And so I get the meal, I get the relationship, I get the trip, I get the Super Bowl, and I think, thank you, God, you're my Father. You you love me so well, you take care of me so well. But I'm not surprised when I get a stomachache afterwards or when I feel empty afterwards because I know I wasn't made for that. It's pointing me to what I was made for. I can enjoy it, but I will not worship it. Because I know where I'm headed. And because I'm headed there, I'm okay with the disappointments that come from time to time in this life. I'm living for another world. Isn't that helpful? I find it very helpful. The fool's path sings its song, you know, it's very tempting. The disillusioned way, man, it makes you look like you're so wise, so worldly wise. You know so much better than all those foolish people out there who are wrecking their life with pleasures. It just feels so good to know so much. But here's what the Christian way offers. A place in the picture. 
a place in the everlasting picture that Jesus showed John. Now, is that what you imagine when you imagine heaven? And do you think on it often? Because if you don't, the chances of following the fool's way and the disillusioned way are very, very high for you. In absence of some other world, you're going to try to make this world everything. And that leads us to our final thing. How did this group of people get there? If you look in the middle at uh, verses 13 to 14, right in the middle of the passage, one of the elders comes up. Remember, the elders represent the great ones. And so maybe this was Moses. Maybe this was Elijah. Maybe it was Zechariah. Maybe it was Isaiah. Who knows who it was? One of the great ones from the history of the faith came up and addressed John and said, Who are all these people that have white robes on? And where did they come from? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, that, that is the question of heaven. How did all these people get here? I mean, who do you let into your home? Anybody? Everybody? Uh, who will you open the door for? There's a list. Who will you let into your living room? There's a smaller but list. Who will you let sit at your table and eat a meal? Smaller, but there's a list. Who will you let into your bedroom? Ought to be real small. Hopefully, for your own safety, all those ought to be increasingly smaller. We discern who comes into our innermost places. Who gets to go to the Oval Office? Very select few people. I would never, probably never get an invitation there, and you probably won't either. Uh, it's very select. Think about this. When the elder and John see the throne of God, the Oval Office of the universe, and they see that in there are a multitude of diverse people that you can't even number, there are so many, the natural question is, how in the world did they get here? I don't understand. How did God let open his doors and into the inner sanctum of his being these people? Did you see how John responded to the elder? I would encourage you to make verse 14 a memory verse. Sir, you know. It's a good memory verse. Isn't it a good thing to be teachable? And listen, if John the apostle who is literally seeing a vision of heaven thinks he's teachable, you should too. And here's the teachable posture. Who are all these people? Oh, well, well let me tell you who they are. I'll get out all my facts and I'll explain it to you, Mr. Glorified Elder. Much better to say, sir... You tell me. I don't know. The mystery of how people get into heaven, I got no idea. You tell me. Teach me. And the elder, a great teacher in the kingdom of God, gives a perfect answer. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, when you hear that, don't think about the Left Behind series of books. 
The great tribulation is not referring to some seven-year period at the end of time or after the end of time. It's referring to what it refers to throughout Revelation and through the teachings of Jesus that it's the time from his first coming and his second coming. The time when all of God's people will have to face many temptations, many trials, and many tribulations. These came out of that. And they ended up in God's inner sanctum in white robes. How did that happen? Because they washed their robes and made them white in what? The blood of the Lamb. Wow. That's how they got in. They washed their robes. When do you have to wash a robe? It's the easy one. When it's dirty. How did all these people get here? Why at the end of time will there be an innumerable amount of people in heaven? Only because they renounced their self-righteousness and asked to be plunged in the fountain of the blood of the Lamb to be made clean. You get to heaven by grace, not by works. Many people are trying to get to heaven in their own robes. Well, my robe's not too bad. After all, you know, so-and-so's robe is a lot worse than mine. Talk about a stinky robe. Right? Those kind of bargains won't work. We're talking about the holy God of the universe whose judgment is perfectly just. Nothing else can wash them. No, no soap, no bleach, nothing can work. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood which stands for his death, which means he, he took the curse that your sins deserved on the cross. The blood that stands for his new life, which he then gives you by grace. That's what you need. That's the only way you and I can enter heaven. You've heard people say, no doubt, that when you get to heaven, you're going to be surprised at some of the people you see there. I think that's true, but I would take it a couple steps further. I think there are going to be some people who are surprised to see you there. Right? And me. And let me take it one more step further. I know I will be surprised that I'm there. And you should be surprised, and you will be, no matter whether you want to or not. You will be surprised you're there. You say, well, why? I know I'm going to heaven. I believe in Jesus. Yes, you can know that. And that's what I'm about to tell you. You can know that. But when you get there and see this, and you see him on the throne and Jesus, I guarantee your first thought will be, who am I and how did I get here? And the answer will be the same. You quit depending on your own filthy robes. And you washed your robes white by faith in the blood of Jesus. You said, I can't earn it. I can only receive it. And you received it from his hand by faith. It's the only answer. The only reason any of us will be there. That's the reason why heaven will be populated. Because Jesus Christ died to populate it. There's another story Jesus tells 
of a king who throws another banquet. It's a wedding banquet for his son. Sound familiar? And he gets all these guests in there. They go out and they invite everybody and the house is full. And the king comes through during the wedding and walks around greeting everybody. And he finds a man, it says, who was not wearing wedding clothes. Remember this story? And he says, sir, how did you get in here? And the man didn't have an answer. And the king says, servant, bind him hand and foot and throw him into utter darkness. Translation, throw him into hell. Why? Was it because, why would he be thrown into hell? Why would all the other ones be left? He didn't have the wedding garment. What is the wedding garment? Is it doing good things? Is it letting your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? No, this is telling you what the wedding garment is. The blood-washed garment. The man was not prepared. He thought he could come to God's wedding because he was a special guest of God's wedding. Listen, if it doesn't surprise you that you're headed to heaven, you need to think about it some more. Because I, I tell you, you hadn't thought about it very much. Or at least not honestly. I don't want any of us to show up at that day thinking that we can waltz in in our own robes. If I can teach you one thing, my whole ministry, it's this. I must wash my robes in the blood of Jesus and that alone, that's where I'm going to boast. That's where I'm going to stake my claim. When I get to heaven and God says, why should I let you in? All I'm going to say is the blood of Jesus. I'm not going to start hemming and hawing about things I've done and all that. I'm going to say Jesus' blood. That's what all of us need to learn to say. We are all sinners. And at the end of the day, the only thing that can keep you out of heaven is your refusal of the grace offered in the gospel. Because there, any sin can be washed away. Any sin. Anything that's got you whipped can be whipped itself by the blood of Jesus. And a palm branch will be laid in your hand one day of victory. But you've got to come to Jesus. You have to wash your robes in the blood of Jesus. Are you prepared for heaven? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It's a glorious place. All the people that John saw will be there. And if you want to know, if you want to live and die in the knowledge that you will be there too, there is only one way to do it. Jesus, take my robes and work your magic. Wash them. And give them back to me fresh and clean. And let me by grace, one day stand before your throne in those robes. Amen.